Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And lords and ladies, thou art most fortunate to lend thine ears to I, <laughs> Lord Admiral, Duke of Suffolk, Viscount Lyle, Edmund Vainglory III, at thy service. Thank you, Admiral, for joining us today. We met the Admiral recently at the Georgia Renaissance Festival, where Sarah and I went to kind of check out the Renaissance scene and see what it's all about, immerse ourselves in Renaissance culture. And so, Admiral, we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you do there. Oh, certainly, certainly. Well, of course, as Lord Admiral, I am in charge of His Majesty's Navy, His Majesty, of course, being Henry VIII, King of England, King of France, Defender of the Faith, Lord of Ireland, you might have seen him, he's on all the coins. Nice fellow. Lovely fellow. He's also got a lovely wife, Anne Boleyn. She's got a good head on her shoulders. Wonderful lady. Indeed. And uh, tis my duty to oversee his navy. Now, of course, being King Henry VIII, his navy consists of eight boats and a fish, so it's not terribly taxing. Oh. The Mary Rose, too. We've discussed that one before. Uh, in faith, named after his sister. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. So what's it like to work for the king, for King Henry VIII? Uh, it's mostly rewarding. Uh, his king is a, a very, very rewarding king, uh, as, as long as you do not get upon his bad side. Uh, you oh. see, uh, one day I, I sailed off from England, returned, discovered that the entire religion had changed while I was gone, uh, made a mistake of making a Catholic joke, and next thing I knew I was threatened to be about eight inches shorter than I had started out. But Uh-oh. everything turned out well. Oh, so he's not very tolerant of... Uh, he has a threshold for certain subjects that you do I not see. wish to cross. He might be listening right now, too, oh. so you might not want to say anything That's too critical true. of the king. Mm. Well, we did get some different takes on the king also, which we might share a little later on. Sarah and I got to talk to a lot of different characters while at the Renaissance Festival. We also checked out some Renaissance music, some jousting. What else, Sarah? Well, we were invited there by the Tortuga Twins, so we got to see some comedy shows And, um, yeah, just blacksmithing, all sorts of things. And just a lot of people having a very good time on a summer's day outside of Atlanta, walking around in authentic costumes themselves or just like us, plain clothes and having a good time. No, no, hold on. on, on, on. We're the ones wearing the normal clothing. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Now the (laughs) ones wearing the outlandish costumes, often having my ankles upon full display for heaven's sake. And even strange black boxes that we were carrying around since mm, we did true. bring we, a tape recorder with us. We stand corrected. We were indeed the unusual ones. So we're not done with the Admiral yet. We're going to come back to him in a little bit. But we did, as we mentioned, talk to a lot of other characters at the Renaissance Festival, kind of um, in our quest to find King Henry VIII mm-hmm. and Anne Boleyn. It was our quest, an unsuccessful one, unfortunately, although we did see them. We just didn't talk to them. Well, yeah, we saw them from afar. But we really wanted to get the chance to talk to them because we heard such great things about them, (laughs) such interesting things, I should say. But I have to say, Sarah, I thought that one of the most difficult parts about the Renaissance Fest was just getting to everything that we wanted to go to. Yeah, well, and that was partly because we had a mission and we had certain things we wanted to see. I think most of the people there were just sort of taking it easy, munching on a turkey leg and um, just 
stopping wherever they were interested. Not running around with a microphone like <laughs> crazy women. We were the only people with that. <laughs> but uh, one of the people that we did run into, luckily, was the friar. We didn't intend to, and we just happened upon him at the tavern. And he was definitely one of the most colorful folks that we ended up talking to. And he gave us some insight on a lot of things, including religion, of course, which the Admiral touched on a little bit, and our favorite topic, the king and queen. Here's what he had to say. What was your name again? Friar Finnegan Friar of the Finnegan. Body Bodacious Fathers and Brown Bohemian Brethren, but you may call me Friar. <laughs> so how do you know the king and queen? Oh, well, you see, to know them I have heard rumor that King Henry is actually thinking of starting his own church. I find that very protesting of him. Very protesting of him, yes. He doesn't like the Pope very much either. So I was brought here to Newcastle so that I could actually help the king understand that what he feels is really true. There's no reason to give money to the Holy Roman Empire when you're trying to build up your own church. I just wish he'd you know, keep his hands off the abbey. Um, so we have no gold in the abbey. We have no gold in the abbey. We bury it out back. Gotcha. Don't tell the king. Gotcha. So how's that going? It's quite well, actually. The burials are going quite well, yes. (laughs) It it looks just like a big, huge cemetery out there. We have gravestones for things like, you know, goldy and silvery and coppery. They're funny names, but it works on the headstones. That way we don't have to worry about making a change. And how's the whole church starting thing? Uh, So far, so far things are going pretty well. Uh, We we do have quite a few people who insist that the Catholic Church is the only way to go. Understandable, very few people here read, to be honest with you. They they don't want to read the Bible. They don't want to have to interpret Deuteronomy. I mean, really, who does? But you can do that for them, right? I can, I can. I just don't know if they trust my opinion. Would you trust my opinion on Deuteronomy? I don't know. I find you pretty... Really? Oh, that's so very good. I can imagine you getting some puns in there. I, I could. I, 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 I very well could. I'm afraid that they would they would do that. I, I tend to tell people to, to, to read the New Testament. Stick with that. It's a little bit easier to understand. So one of the things the Admiral had also recommended we do was check out some genuine Renaissance music. And we really wanted to do that, too, not just because we're both really into music, but because music was such a huge part of life during the Renaissance period. I mean, you can imagine Henry VIII with his court musician enjoying conversation and and lovely tunes. But whether you were out and about or at church or, of course, hanging out at the king's court during the years generally spanning from 1400 to 1600 in Europe, you were bound to hear some kind of music. Yeah, according to an article by Rebecca Arkenberg of the Metropolitan Museum of Arts Department of Education, though, most of the important music of the early Renaissance was composed for use by the Catholic Church. And this was evidenced in polyphonic masses and motets that incorporated several melodies at the same time. But by the end of the 16th century, composers' incomes came from several sources. They were paid by the Catholic Church, again, but also Protestant churches and courts, wealthy amateurs, and music printers to create music. So you might sponsor a piece of music? Yes, exactly. Arkenberg also says that the early 15th century was dominated by English and Northern European composers, but over the next century or so, Franco-Flemish composers also came into the mix, and ideas from Italy and Germany and France began to kind of influence everything that was going on in that scene as well. So more of what Arkenberg calls an, quote, 
international European style begins to emerge around this time. Yeah, kind of a hybrid of different countries' musical traditions almost. Right. By the beginning of the 16th century, though, the first collection of printed music was published by a Venetian printer, and the introduction of music printing allowed more people to learn to read music. So just as you had the, the printing presses, you know, spreading literacy, same thing with music almost. And before this time, music had to be learned by ear or from music that was copied out by hand. So usually only religious institutions or really rich people uh, were able to do that. Again, kind of like books. I mean, if monks are having to uh, copy everything out, not too many people are going to own books. That's very true. That century also saw the use of several musical instruments, including the viola da gamba, um, which was a newer one, the lute, the recorder, the harpsichord, and the organ. And more instrumental music also came on the scene and was developed during these years before this time. Instruments were typically for vocal accompaniment. So that was something a little bit different. To get an idea of how Renaissance Festival performers might recreate the music of this period, we talked to Renaissance Festival performer Luca Callo about the music that he plays, which is Renaissance-inspired, and how he pulls that off. I mean, he didn't learn these songs by ear, so we wanted to learn, you know, first of all, where he finds his music, how he chooses it, and um, then how he makes it come to life. And here is what he told us. All of the pieces except for one or two are actually historical songs, um, period pieces that I have learned mostly off of other performers that I admire and look up to. So I learn a lot of pieces orally Mm -hmm. like most uh, musicians of the period would have done and then try to do them in my own way and come and play. But yes, all of them except two are period pieces. Awesome. So how did you learn these? Um... A lot of other Renfair performers and people that play in the SCA, um, historical reenactment groups. And have you had to do any particular like historical research to play them um, in the style of the period? Like, have you? A little bit. Um, my guitar is strong and tuned like a lute, so I have been learning off of lute tab, and so I can play a lute style piece, and um, just a lot of listening to period pieces, whether it be off of sheet music that is replications of pieces or off of other performers that do period style music. So that was great to talk to Luca Kahlo and learn a little bit more about the music we were likely to hear in the Renaissance. But uh, the other thing we couldn't leave the festival without doing was check out jousting. And actually, I think besides meeting the king and queen, jousting was probably the experience that was recommended to us most and the the thing that we were just most determined to do. It definitely seems like the main attraction at Renaissance Festival. And they have um, several jousting tournaments throughout the day. So I imagine people come and check in periodically because the storyline progresses throughout the day, too. It's not like you're seeing the same tournament three times. Right. Most people at least have an idea of what jousting is and have maybe seen an example of it in a movie or something. It, It generally conjures up images of two knights charging toward each other with a lance 
each aiming for the other's shield, trying to knock it or trying to knock his opponent off the horse. I mean, we've all kind of seen nice some scale, iteration of this. Like that. Jousting appears to have started out in the Middle Ages, though, actually, around the beginning of the 12th century. And in its earliest form, which I didn't know this before, it wasn't a one-on-one thing. According to Nigel Saul in History Today, early jousting tournaments were chaotic competitions between groups of knights. That Teams would sometimes consist of hundreds of knights who were using these tournaments as a way to kind of bond or unite themselves as fighters. So, as you might have imagined, it has its roots in war training. And that does make sense if you think that's more likely to be the condition of the battlefield. It's not going to just be the two knights out there all by themselves. Very true. But Saul points out that even at those early jousts, there was an element of entertainment there because there were audiences for them. And there's even evidence that spectator stands were built as early as the 1170s. Yeah, but by the time the Renaissance rolled around, jousting had really developed into something of a true spectator sport, almost like how we would think of a spectator sport today, valued mainly for the entertainment that it provided. And Saul talked also a little bit about knights as celebrities, and there was an element of showmanship to what they did. I've actually read before that um, um, their their heralds, you know, their flags that they wore were were something that were a little bit akin to how you would recognize a face today. You might not recognize the knight's face because he wears armor. He's far away from you. You probably don't have good vision, but you could recognize his his standard, his flag. Well, and there just really wasn't, you know, there wasn't the media culture that there is now. You couldn't just look in Us Weekly and see a picture of your favorite <laughs> knight. So that was the way that people Bob would recognize their favorite. Yeah, and and I mean a lot of the story. Stories of knights and their jousts were um, proliferated through stories Mm -hmm. that were told about them or stories that were written about them. Yes, or songs. So we got a little bit of a taste of the celebrity culture at the Renaissance Fest, as Sarah mentioned earlier, at the joust that we witnessed. The crowd was enormous. I mean, I think that we thought uh, at the time that pretty much everyone at the festival had sort of packed into the middle to see the joust during that 30 to 40 minutes or however long it took. And the crowd actually picked sides. About half the crowd would root for a certain night while the rest booed him. And there was definitely showmanship, as you mentioned, preening even on the part of the knights and display of skill and even a little bit of cheating. Especially from our guy. Yeah. (laughs) You will show no favor to any knight. Knights will abide by our code of chivalry and his majesty's rules of engagement. And I ask, is Edgerrodens ready? He is!
Amadeo's side. And, um, yeah, there was a little bit of, of cheating going on. Um, and they started ultimately, a fight. That, yeah, that they challenged each other to that match to the death, joust to the death, mm-hmm. uh, which we heard later from the Admiral is quite the show. Unfortunately, we didn't get to see that, but there's even fire breathing. So these guys, in addition to being um, historical performers, are really talented uh, technical performers, too. Yeah, that's so true. Just the fact that they can stay on a horse and use that lance and, and do everything. I mean, I was pretty impressed by what I saw. Several times a day. Yeah, and keep on going. But... Another personal highlight for us of this festival was getting to meet a couple of listeners. That's always a highlight for us whenever we're out and about. And it was Ron and Ricky, and they were actually the ones who invited us to the festival in the first place. They perform at the festival as part of an act called the Tortuga Twins, and we got to see them put on a funny parody of Robin Hood, incorporating members of the audience. Luckily, not us. I I hate that. I was just (laughs) sitting there the entire time, like, don't pick me, don't pick me, don't pick me. I don't want to go on stage. as Maid Marian. (laughs) No, thank you. (laughs) Afterward, they talked to us a little bit about what it's like to work at the festival, whether Robin Hood was a real guy, and of course, our favorite topic, the king and queen. Can you guys introduce yourselves for us? Yeah, yeah. Greetings. Bonjour. Hola. Salutations. How's it going? Hello. 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 Welcome and howdy. We are the Tortuga Twins. Woo-hoo. <laughs> and we're here with the babe. Some stuff you missed in history class. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what you've learned about the Renaissance. Well, uh, what we've learned about the Renaissance is that really people haven't been paying attention. <laughs> you, uh, we do student days at some of the Renaissance festivals all over the country, and the first question I always like to ask is, all right, children, students, you're here for what does Renaissance mean? I don't know. <laughs> so, maybe, maybe, if we're lucky, a teacher will know. Oh, yeah. no. Yeah, but it's, uh, it, it's great. Uh, I learned that, uh, boy, uh, compared to Da Vinci, I'm not doing anything with my life. Uh, I, we've learned that there is a historical precedent for what we do, but it's not an honorable one. <laughs> um, we yeah. learned that we're very happy to be able to reenact the Renaissance, but live in this time now. Yes, because yeah. I'm a big fan of antibiotics and indoor plumbing. <laughs> <laughs> So we just saw the Robin Hood show. Do y'all have any ideas about who might be the real Robin Hood? I know there are a lot of contenders. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I personally believe that he was completely a myth. I personally believe that he's, uh, and I know they talk about Locksley and a couple of the ones on that. I personally believe that he's just an amalgam of too many characters. It's, it's, it's like biblical stories, you know. You start recreating one and all of a sudden you realize it's the same thing as the Sumerian myths and it just gets awfully complicated there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what he said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So who are your favorite personalities here? Do you know the king and queen? The king and queen are awesome here. Um, oh, gosh. There's a pirate. There's a pirate here that just Whoa. charming. Ladies, be careful around that pirate. <laughs> he's, he's charming. He's so charming, in fact, we try to hire him for the troop. <laughs> oh, yeah, for Francis Drake. Francis Drake. Oh, oh, right. oh yeah. Oh, kind of big guy. Yeah, kind of big guy around here. It's a good historical one, yeah. Okay, so now that we've gotten a chance to talk about some of the fun things we saw at our day at the Renaissance Festival, we do still have the Lord Admiral in the room, and we want to ask him some questions, except um, some of you might have already guessed this by now if you're podcast listeners. The Lord Admiral is really our own Jonathan Strickland of Tech Stuff. Hey there. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jonathan, tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the Renaissance Festival, because you've been doing it for a long time, right? Sure. Uh, all right. So back in 1999, 
Uh, I was in a a show that was going to be performed at a science fiction convention. And one of the other actors in that show was a performer with the Renaissance Festival. And she had revealed that there was going to be some um, auditions coming up. And back then in 99, the festival had two seasons. They did a fall season and a spring season. And so I decided, along with my wife, to audition for this. And we went in and we auditioned. I happened to have the best audition of my entire life for the Renaissance Festival, <laughs> which is both a funny story and a sad one. And as a result, I was hired and I was given uh, the opportunity to play the Lord Mayor of the festival. And I did that for several seasons. I took a leave of absence for a while. And then uh, I came back on as a favor to uh, the the entertainment director who was having some, some turnover problems with some of the cast on a particular season. And the thing was they had already hired a new person to play the Lord Mayor. And I had not gone through the entire rehearsal process to build a new character. So rather than try and design something haphazardly, I essentially took the same character, gave him the new title of Lord Admiral, modeled him a little bit after a couple of different historical figures, and came back on and uh, worked there for, uh, well, up through 2012. So when we went to the festival, Jonathan was actually the very first person we saw right over the entrance. He hailed us as Lady Sarah and Lady Dublina. And um, I was immediately struck by your costume because I do love costumes. And also it was such it was such a shock. You were clearly not Jonathan. You were the Lord Admiral. You look very different from you <laughs> from how you do day to day, although we do notice you grow out your your goatee every year. So yes. what kind of how did you how did you pick out your costume? How did you put it together and what kind of historical research went into it? That's an excellent question. And this is different for every single person at the festival. Most of us, we provide our own costumes. There are very few costumes that the festival itself owns that that characters use. Uh, But in my case, what I did was I wanted to look at some typical doublets from earlier than the festival year. The festival year is 1535. Okay. Uh, I was looking at around 1520. Uh, so I was looking at, at things that would be outdated by the time it got around, thinking that the Lord Admiral is someone who's very wealthy, but also kind of thrifty and miserly. He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't want to spend more money updating his, his, uh, his entire wardrobe. And so I found a design of a doublet from the 1520s that was really intricate and interesting to me. And I took that design to a seamstress here in Atlanta and I said, can we make something similar but not identical to this? Because I don't want to lift someone else's design, but I want something that kind of evokes this same feeling. And so uh, she and I worked together, and that piece is a one-of-a-kind piece specifically tailored to me. And uh, and it does have that 1520-era feel to it. Because as you get closer to Henry's time, the doublets start getting shorter and uh, you start having things like the 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 short hose and the <laughs> pumpkin pants and things and i said i do not want that i do not want to have to worry about a cod piece i want i want a nice long doublet that goes down to say mid thigh and uh and because i think that's sort of the character and so different people went about it in different ways trying to come up with their costumes and so uh the costumes for the king and queen are incredibly elaborate and they were both designed by the actress who plays the queen. She is a, a very uh, competent seamstress in her own right. And so you get 
to that level of incredible detail and amazing costume uh, prowess, if you will, all the way down to the peasants who are wearing very simple, uh, you know, it might be a a simple shirt or tunic, uh, some simple hose, and then some really ratty shoes, and then they roll around in the dirt all day. How do you guys maintain them, too? I mean, I'm thinking... Uh, at the time when these people were wearing elaborate clothes like this, it was a bit of a cold spell around the world. But you know, this is Atlanta. This is the summer. How do you how do you keep them going for a few months? Yeah, how much deodorant do you go through? <laughs> a lot. Summer. Uh, yeah, uh, the 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 good actors go through quite a bit. Um, there are a couple of things. One, we try and use as many materials that will wick away sweat as much as possible. So a lot of cottons. You know, you want to try and keep things as cool as possible considering the weather that we get in Georgia. Uh, Another part is that we maintain our own temperatures by drinking lots and lots of ice water. So we have ice water stations hidden around the festival (laughs) so that we can go and quickly fill up our mugs. We Everyone is required to have two things. You're required to have a hat and you're required to have a mug. And uh, the mug is so that, you know, you're supposed to keep it at least half full of ice water all day long. So if you start getting low, you're supposed to go back and refill as soon as you possibly can. That helps a lot. Also, just pacing yourself, staying in the shade, just general rules that you learn as a performer. Uh, also, you learn very quickly, you don't want to go all out 110% from opening gate through lunch because you'll be completely burned out and you'll have nothing left for the second half of the day because we're open from 10.30 in the morning until about 6.30 at night, and you're on that entire time. So temperature aside, what is it like to be part of that world for that many hours a day for so many weekends out of the year? On a good day, it's amazing. So on a good day where there are a lot of people and they're playful, uh, you you get re-energized by the fact that people will play with you, especially kids. They have no sense of (laughs) self-consciousness. They buy into it being silly. They understand it's silly, but they love being silly. And the actors love being silly, too, so it really helps. When you run into adults who kind of have that, that they've built those barriers up where being silly feels like it's not right, that gets a little more challenging. And on slow days or days where the weather is a little uh, little rough, that can be the biggest challenge. It's not the fact that you're out there in those conditions. It's the fact that the audience is in those conditions and they are less prone to playing. A little grumpy. Yeah. And so it means you have to work extra hard to connect with your audience. And that is what is exhausting. Gotcha. So in addition to costumes, um, what sort of historical research goes into building your character? That's an excellent question, too. And again, this depends very much upon the sort of character you play. Uh, Let me go through the character building process really quickly. It's pretty simple. So you audition, and once you audition, the production staff gets an idea of where you might fit within the hierarchy of the festival, whether you might, you know, you you tend to skew as more of a noble character or more of a peasant character, (laughs) perhaps one of the middle class. Uh, The idea being that where would you be the most entertaining? So once we figure out where you're the most entertaining, then we start to figure out what role should you fill in the festival. And all of our characters are very, very focused on specific roles. And you'll notice it immediately. For example, the fashion consultant to the queen is obsessed with the color pink, and she cut, ties pink bows on anyone who stands still long enough for her to do so. <laughs> and you know that's a that's a fun character trait. So 
in, in that sense, you're really concentrating on the entertainment factor first and historical accuracy maybe fifth or sixth. It's not even <laughs> second, really. Once you get to that, though, you then have to start thinking, all right, well, we've settled the year as 1535. How would this silly character, how would this character inhabit that world? Now, in my case, I'm playing the part of a Lord Admiral. Now, there's an actual historical analog to that, which I obviously could not be, because uh, the Lord Admiral at the time of 1535 is Henry VIII's illegitimate son, who was a teenager at the time and only lived to be about 15 or 16 years old before he died. So I can't pass for a teenage kid anymore. I'm in my 30s, <laughs> and that, that ship sailed a long time ago. So there are certain things I have to sacrifice. And it's always interesting when I run into people who have enough historical background to ask me tough questions about the actual Huh. roles that I play. So I've had people ask me about Lord Admiral questions where they clearly knew their their historical stuff and I get to make up answers. <laughs> or they know, because I, I gave my character the titles of Duke of Suffolk and Viscount Lyle, that's Charles Brandon who married Ooh, one of yeah. Henry's sisters clandestinely. Right. I had someone ask me about that. Says, Could you comment upon Henry's sisters, and I thought, oh, you're trying to trap me. The king's sitting right next to me. Oh, <laughs> so, no. So I very gently got out of that before uh, it became too big of a bit, because the king, the guy who plays the king, is sharp, and he knows his stuff, too. And he would have no hesitation in bringing me in front of everybody and punishing banished me in some way. Oh, I did no. get banished on my last day. Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> they, they cut my beard off in front of everybody and banished me from the kingdom. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that the beads are gone yep. by now. Yep. Um, it's funny, though. You know, we were talking about historical inaccuracies with you earlier, too. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you would just go over some of those and then go over. Yeah. I mean, how often do, do people call things out, too? I mean, that's you're talking about people who clearly know their history. But yeah. do people ever come up to you with just random things about the festival that they consider inaccurate? Uh, it Teenagers are really good about that. <laughs> Teenagers really Fresh out of love history it. Class. Uh, or or just just they just like to they just like to try and push your buttons. So they'll point out for, first of all all the food at the festival. I mean, you're talking about food that is not period at all. And you wouldn't what? want it turkey to be. legs aren't period. <laughs> yeah, or potatoes <laughs> which haven't made their way back to England yet or tea. <laughs> Tea is not, that's, you know, people think about it. The queen loves her tea, despite the fact it's a complete anachronism. Or the fact that we'll quote Shakespeare, who was not yet really uh, a thing in 1535, not being born. Uh, there are a lot of little inaccuracies. And again, the the focus of the festival is entertainment, not education or historical accuracy. That's why we we have this love-hate relationship with the Society of Creative Anachronism, which is a, a nonprofit organization that's all dedicated about educating about the Middle Ages up to the Renaissance and including some stuff in the Renaissance as well. And, and they kind of look down their nose at us and the, some, some of them anyway. And the response is essentially, this is really, it's, it's entertainment first and we do not pretend otherwise. It is a Renaissance themed entertainment venue. And, uh, and so the food definitely not period. A lot of the costumes aren't as well. I went early with mine, so I felt like I was all right. Uh, although I did wear a cavalier hat, which was well outside the period of <laughs> Henry VIII. Uh, but a lot of the queen's dresses and her ladies-in-waiting, they had bum rolls, which were not really used in in 
female costume, female clothing, uh, until almost a hundred years after when the festival is set. But it's an idea of creating this picture that people think of when they think Renaissance. How you That's imagine the Renaissance and sort of, I guess, almost combining the whole long period of the Renaissance into yeah. right. one date. And you'll see, you'll see I mean, characters. Leonardo da Vinci was there. Right. We saw him who would, too. Have, who had been dead almost, <laughs> almost two decades uh, by then. Yeah, he's uh, very lively for a corpse. Um, uh, yeah, no, he, he's he's great. The actor who plays him is great. And and you'd also see things like you'd, you'd see people wearing costume from different parts of the world and in different eras. So it's not just the Renaissance of England that is represented. You'll see clothing that is more Italian in A design. lot of belly dance coin skirts. Yeah, yes, yeah, very popular. Okay, so that being said, there is an educational aspect to the festival too, though, right? Yeah, we have a student day every year. Uh, and this is a day when, when schools can send busloads of students to the festival and we have a series of shows that are very much educational where we talk about historical events. There's one that's about the wives of Henry VIII and they give a quick rundown of all the different wives, uh, their fates, why why did Henry VIII have that many wives, what happened to each one uh, and uh, there's also a little fun in that. Anne of Cleves is traditionally played by a man. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there, there's that. There's also a, a, a presentation that's all about superstitions during the Renaissance. Uh, there's one on the manners and mannerisms of people during the Renaissance talking about the various uh, customs and why they are the way they are and why some of the things we do today are related to what went on in the Renaissance. So there is an educational part of the Renaissance Festival, but on a typical Renaissance Festival day, uh, it's not as big a role. Although we have people come in and ask us questions. The king and queen have their own little throne room area, and they're there throughout the day at different parts of the day. And we often have people come in and ask us questions then, and we're more than happy to answer them to the best of our ability. And that's one thing, again, that the king and queen are very good at. They they remember who remembers more about different sections. Oh, Lord Admiral, why do you not answer that question? Oh, I'd be most happy <laughs> to address this issue. Nice. Well, you don't refuse the king ever, right? Never. You never. Re- no, you make it up if you don't know it. So but you, if you make it up and you make it silly enough, people will buy it. Right. Well, we were uh, talking to the Tortuga twins actually a little bit, and they were telling us some of the things that kids are surprised to learn on those student days. Were that what, is there anything that you think is kind of shocking that people don't know when they come in? Um. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a good example where one of the kids piped up. Uh, uh, and it was a, a sort of a know-it-all type kid, which you know, I identify with immediately. That's my personality <laughs> right there. Uh, but this know-it-all kid. We would kid, never say that. No, but it's fine. <laughs> I'm a self-identifying know-it-all. Uh, but this, but I've, and I've also been in this position. This was a know-it-all who had something incredibly wrong. And so he was looking at Henry VIII and had identified this is King Henry VIII and pipes up with, Where's Marie Antoinette? Oh, dear. <laughs> yes. And whereupon I, I got actually watched uh, Henry VIII as uh, an actor named John. I watched John's face turn about eight shades of red, <laughs> where he finally was able to formulate a response that had uh, no inappropriate language in it uh, and explain that that's not the right time in period. The right. Not the right time period, not the right country, and that uh, the young person should perhaps put down the iPad and pick up a book. 
That was that was the end of his little tirade, as I recall. Well, but we don't want to say that because maybe the kids should listen to the history podcast. Well, that That's would true. also help. Uh, uh, Henry VIII may listen to this. John, I think, has not cu- picked up on this particular podcast yet. <laughs> So what are you going to do now that you're retiring from the Renaissance Festival? How are you going to keep your Renaissance fix going? I mean, I'd imagine after all these years, you've developed uh, an even healthier interest than a typical English major would have in the Renaissance. Sure. Uh, well, one is that I it looks like I'm still going to have a hand at least in writing some of the uh, the scenario for the Renaissance Festival. Now, at the Georgia Festival, we have sort of an over a story that progresses throughout the day, and that story is something that you can follow if you want to. And it's it's not necessary for you to enjoy the festival. If you don't encounter the story, that's fine. But if you want to, you can follow along. Uh, I will still have a hand in that, and I'll probably show up at least once or twice to do a guest performance. Uh, and also, I mean, I, I I'm still. I'm still an actor, so occasionally I'm going to go out and audition for shows that may have something to do with the Renaissance. I I do love Shakespeare, so I'll probably audition for more Shakespeare shows. Um, beyond that, I think I will go as a patron and enjoy my time there as <laughs> a in plain clothes and being able <laughs> to leave whenever I want. Maybe you'll break out the admiral costume at one of our um, Halloween days in the office or something. Maybe sometime. I think Christmas I wore it. party maybe Christmas party <laughs> yes. even better. I think I wore it once. For did I? I guess I never did bring it all into the the office because it's it's heavy. I mean, when you add in everything with the boots and the 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 doublet itself is quite heavy. Uh, and then if I want to bring any of the accoutrement, all the jewelry, <laughs> the sword, good heavens, uh, it definitely gets to to weigh you down pretty quickly. I mean, that e- even trying to use the lightest materials I had, you're still wearing multiple layers. So it's a it's a commitment. But I'm sure it'd be a big hit around the office. Oh, I have no doubt about that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to us, Jonathan, and Lord Admiral as well. Um, it was fun. We had a great time at the festival. We too. had a great time seeing you in your other element. It's uh, it's always interesting to see people I know in my quote-unquote real life when they come in, especially if they don't realize that we do try and follow very closely the motto of do not break character. (laughs) And so you try and find interesting ways to address people you know that gives them the idea of you know what you're trying to to actually communicate, but not break away from your character role. Like calling us ladies. Yes. No one ever does that in normal life. Well, you know, (laughs) I know you well enough where. uh, (laughs) But the admiral, obviously you're visiting royalty. Well, thank you again, Jonathan, for talking to us. And um, we had a lot of fun. Do we have any kind of fun articles on the Renaissance? I don't think we do. Jonathan, maybe you'll have to create one. We have we have one on torture devices. Oh. I think we might have one on Henry VIII. Yeah, we do. Actually, I think I edited it. <laughs> I should have thought of that. We have one on um, top ten heads that rolled during the reign of Henry VIII. <sighs> Luckily, the Admirals was not one. <laughs> yes. this year. Jonathan will use his picture as um, a <laughs> homepage art. should just be art. an animated picture of my head <laughs> bouncing across the screen. 
So you'll have to check that out. Um, also, email us. Let us know about Renaissance festivals that you visited in your town. I know they're all over the country. and probably Yeah, we have, need to compare notes. Yeah, different styles to each of them, I'd imagine. So email us. We're at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History, and we're on Facebook. And if you want to find that Henry VIII article that Sarah was talking about, which she edited apparently, you can look it up by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.